around the world, food prices increased for a 12th straight month in May, this according to the United Nations, with data showing it to be the longest streak in a decade. Food security is today as important as ever, impacted by climate change, severe weather and drought, inflation and politics. But there are a range of incredible companies out there working hard to shake up the way we grow, buy and access food, to lower the environmental impact of food production, cut down on waste and ensure better access for people everywhere. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs with me, Daniel Bage. First up today, we're off to Singapore to meet Benjamin Swan, the CEO and co-founder of Sustainer Agriculture. Originally from Australia, he moved to Singapore to oversee the construction of the Sky Park at the Marina Bay Sands Hotel, and then oversaw the construction of Citibank's regional offices to meet sustainability standards. But in noticing the difficulty in finding top quality local produce, Benjamin decided to apply his skills to agriculture. Singapore imports the vast majority of its food and of course has very little space for farmland. Launched in 2013, Sustainer has created a model which can convert any commercial space into a vertical farm. They've also developed their own technology which is helping the company cultivate greens that are richer in antioxidants and vitamins than produce grown outdoors. They've recently expanded to Hong Kong and Malaysia and aim to grow further to provide solutions for communities across Asia. Here's Benjamin now with the story of Sustainer Agriculture. Sustainer started as a guy who just wanted a fresh salad. I moved to Singapore in 2008 to build the Marina Bay Sands project, and I became instantly frustrated when I moved here with the quality of produce. Having moved from Australia as an abundance of fresh produce, the quality of products that we were getting here in Singapore at the time were quite poor and it wasn't Singapore's fault it wasn't the retailer's fault it was just purely the time it would take for the products to get to Singapore the cost the quality just wasn't there and more importantly when you would open a bag of produce if you didn't consume it within 12 hours it would quite literally melt into the bottom of the bag and be completely unedible so i was also wasting a vast amount of produce in my fridge I was actually traveling home when I was working at Citibank at this point and I read an article on Facebook about indoor farming. So my initial reaction was, hey, this is great. I can learn about how I can grow a product in my house for myself. At the time, indoor farming was very conceptual. There was some great renderings about this is what it could look like, but there was no literature about how you could actually make this new form of growing which is controlled environment agriculture work. So I had to create I guess a baseline on how growing happens today. I hadn't planted a tree or plant in my life. So I had to learn about what is agriculture and that just quite literally started with a Google study. It was here that I started to learn the environmental impact that traditional farming has on the environment. What concerned me the most was that people really weren't talking about how bad traditional agriculture is and it's not again when we talk about people's fault it's not the farmer's fault that it is like this it's just we as consumers want to have variety and the limitations of what farmers can grow is what is driving the centralized farming systems that we have today so what's making our i guess traditional farming bad for the environment is the fact that we're growing products in central plots around the world and then having to ship it out which is creating these vast amounts of waste creating vast amounts of carbon footprint 
We've recently done a study here in Singapore with getting produce from the east coast of Australia. And we found that it actually takes 7.2 kilos of carbon emission to get one kilo of lettuce to Singapore. 6.8 of that is just on logistics. Now, it's commonly known that we waste 30 to 40% of our food getting it to the end consumer, but that number is actually based on the mix of products like corn, wheat, all the way through to the highly perishable products like leafy greens, herbs, and spices. But the reality is that for these highly perishable products, the waste is a lot higher than that. It's actually more like 70%. Thereby, the deforestation that we're doing today to actually produce the food that we need to feed our communities, 70% of that when it comes to growing products like leafy greens and herbs and spices is done today just to waste to get the end consumer, which is really scary. The transition started very slowly. First of all, it started with an idea on how do I think about maximizing the volume of produce that can actually be created in a space that has no ventilation, no natural light, and pack as many plants as possible into a cubic meter, thereby making the system able to offset costs, high costs in places like Singapore and Hong Kong for rent, for example. Also with the efficiency of the usage of electricity, I basically started to draw what I thought the space should look like and create a hypothesis around how growing could happen with this, I guess, mantra of being able to push as many plants in as possible and maximizing the inputs or understanding the diminishing returns of the inputs so that we can maximize our outputs. So that journey all started actually in a basement underneath my business partner's pool. I'd read somewhere that uh, you can actually trick a plant to think that it's in a cold environment by chilling the water. And I took that idea to the lab and we tested it out. And almost instantly we started growing products like arugula and kale in a basement that was 42 degrees and over 90% humidity, which is impossible for arugula to grow in that environment. So the challenges of the industry still exist today. Agriculture is heavily fragmented when it comes to the technology that serves the industry. What I learned in that basement as well is that you can't take traditional technology, plug it into a space that has no natural light, no ventilation, and expect to grow efficiently. So pretty much off the bat, we had to start to innovate in not only the hardware and software, but the techniques that are used to actually create products in such an environment. That is what has led to this infrastructure or ecosystem that we've developed today, which really replicates what happens outdoors. So we've kind of cracked the code on how do we use technology to replicate what happens traditionally in an outdoor environment to grow these difficult products or impossible products like kale and arugula in Singapore. Uh, we've actually gone one step further where by harnessing that technology and being able to change the environment, we've learned how to kind of change the plant physiology in positive ways. So it makes the products not only taste better, but actually more nutritious as well. When we first started serving our customers here in Singapore, the expats absolutely loved our products because it tastes identical to the traditional stuff that we we're receiving from America through to Australia. For a lot of my Singaporean customers, they don't eat kale. They prefer to cook their vegetables with lots of sauce and that's typically or traditionally how they will eat or consume their products. 
We're very passionate about creating superfoods that are more nutritious, that are traceable, 100% clean. And we want our customers to get the most nutrition out of the products. And with that idea, we took it to our customers, asking them if we could make this product less bitter, less tough for you, would you actually consume it raw? Because we want you to get the best nutrition from the product. Again, we took that to the lab and what we started to do was by changing the air temperature, humidity, the macro micronutrients in the water and even down to the wavelength of light, we started to learn that we could actually change the taste characteristics of the plants that we're growing in that environment. So our kale today is far less bitter, it's almost sweet and can be eaten completely raw. We've done tests here in Singapore with products that are grown in Australia and our kale actually has six times the manganese. That's the antioxidant that fights cancer. We've got three times the vitamin C, 60% more calcium and 40% more iron. So we're growing it a lot more nutritious than the products that are grown outdoors. Now, whether that's more that the products are grown locally, thereby it is much fresher for the consumers, why the nutritional value is so much higher. We haven't taken tests to that extent yet. However, the fact is that because we are truly harvested table the same day and taking products that we get from off shelf from other countries versus the stuff that we grow here in Singapore under Sustainer's CEA technique, our tests are showing that the nutrition is far higher. So the agricultural industry at large in the region it is quite fragmented somewhat and the limitations of what we can actually grow here is really dependent on the placement of the farms and the varieties that our communities are commanding. So it's actually then consumers that are really driving the farmers to grow the products that they are growing and the efficiency of those products really depends on again where the farms are placed. Here in Singapore, we're limited to the varieties that we can grow here, like bok choy, kailan, etc. We can't grow kale outdoors, but our communities here are commanding that they do have those varieties here for them to consume. This is why we saw a big opportunity for us as Sostenir to really disrupt the food value chain because end consumers are always going to want to have variety. And right now, because of the limitation of being able to grow these products outdoors, we built Sostenir with the philosophy of displacing imports exclusively. That's why we don't grow bok choy and kailan inside of our farms, because that would be competing with the local farmers. What we want to do is try and reinvent the food ecosystem where the products that can't grow locally, we exclusively focus on those, thereby every kilo we produce here in Singapore, Hong Kong and Malaysia, we're displacing those products coming from abroad. So that means that every kilo we produce here, we're not only reducing down food waste, but also carbon emission. Now, the industry at large, not just for here in Asia, but across the globe, needs to really think about these highly perishable products that are consumed globally that are produced globally and then distributed globally. We need to rethink that part of the industry right now. Corn, wheat, those products that have a, a long shelf life, of course, they need to be grown outdoors. And the benefit of those products is logistically, we can become a lot smarter in the way that we distribute those commodities across the world, reducing down food waste, reducing down carbon emissions through smarter logistics, for example. 
the low-hanging fruit for us is really to focus on those products that have to be exported or imported that are creating vast amounts of waste. And this is where indoor farming will play a big part in that evolution in rethinking the food value chain. The reality is that we've only really just scratched the surface on what controlled environment agriculture can do. Today, we're creating leafy greens. We've grown strawberries in the past, cherry tomatoes, edible flowers, herb spices. We've grown these incredible products that are completely disrupting the food value chain by bringing the production closer to the community and even making the products more bespoke to the demographics consuming it. But the reality is that we're creating 100% clean produce. Inside of our environments, there are zero pesticides used because we're creating this closed box that not even the air from outside comes into our grow environment. So by not even having the outdoor air, we're effectively removing out. And in Asia, where we do have haze and pollution as smog from outdoors, we're even stopping that from coming into the room. So the products are 100% clean. Now, we think about TCM, pharmaceuticals, cosmetics. These are all products that are grown outdoors using heavy pesticides, etc. If you talk about specifically TCM and, and a lot of the herbs that we use in teas, these are the products that into the future we can quite easily pivot into and start to create those safe products for our communities that are currently sourcing them from abroad. We don't know where they're coming from. We don't know how they're produced. We don't know what chemicals they're using on them. So by creating that traceability for the products, we're giving, I guess, assurance and peace of mind to the communities we're serving. Sustainu has a really important purpose, which is to rethink the way that we create foods so we can create a more resilient future, especially in a post-pandemic world. Food resilience in the past has meant partnering with neighboring countries to secure supply for that community. When we have our borders shut down, it creates a lot of risk now, and we need to rethink how we're actually producing that food locally. And obviously, Sustainer has that capability of doing that for markets like Hong Kong and Singapore that have very limited land. But we need to really think about how we're reducing down our footprints in our farming. Our big ambition is to have Sustainer in every major city across Asia Pacific, and then potentially in the future, look to expand beyond. Benjamin Swan, co-founder and CEO of Sustainer Agriculture. You can learn more at sustainereagriculture.com. My thanks to Monocle's Nina Mio for conducting the interview, and do stay tuned in the coming weeks as we take a closer look at some interesting businesses in Asia thinking about food security and growing healthy food with lower impact, including a unique urban farm in Hong Kong and a company said to be Asia's first whole plant-based meat alternative brand. Dubai Tourism is proud to partner with the entrepreneurs on Monocle 24. Dubai is one of the most dynamic and innovative cities on the planet in which to do business and a place where you can enjoy unrivaled quality of life. Dubai should be your destination, whether you're looking to start a new venture or take your career to the next level. 
Dan Bolton is the founder and director of Dan Bolton Creative Management Agency. Dan arrived in Dubai in 2008 and says the city's close-knit creative community has been a driving force behind his success. Dubai can compete with the rest of the world in terms of some of the creativity that it has to offer. And definitely from an events perspective, we produce and deliver some of the biggest events the world's ever seen. It would normally take, you know, like 10 years in a different country to be able to do this. In Dubai, it can take two years. It's very fast-paced and we're constantly evolving and constantly doing things differently. And that's the most exciting thing about doing business here in Dubai. Dan Bolton there. Dubai, the future of business is here. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs on Monocle 24. When the peloton of the Tour de France rolls across the starting line in Brittany this weekend, each and every rider will have a high-powered supercomputer on their bikes, giving them details about the route while sending a range of data back to their team cars in real time, which can change the strategy of the race, things like heart rate, power output, and even glucose levels. Next up, we'll hear from Peter Morgan, who is founder and CEO of Hammerhead, a New York-based company whose Karu 2 bike computer will help guide the Israel Startup Nation team in the tour. But it's in inspiring a whole world of non-professional cyclists that really interests the company. Hammerhead was founded in 2013 after Pete took a 5,000-kilometer ride across the United States, realizing that the bike computer market really fell short of what the everyday cyclists could use. Pete teamed up with engineer and childhood friend Lawrence Watrous to build their first unit. And today, they're even working with major car companies like Ford to find ways to make cycling in cities safer. Most recently, Hammerhead announced that Pete's high school friend from South Africa, four-time Tour de France champion Chris Froome, had invested in the company and would be joining its advisory board. I caught up with Pete from his home in New York to hear the story of Hammerhead. What we're doing is we're bringing a new level, a new generation of technology to the cycling head unit category. I've been a passionate cyclist for a very long time. And one thing that struck me when I was actually riding my bicycle across the United States was just how high tech the bikes were, but how rudimentary the digital technology was in the industry. We were trying to navigate from New Haven to San Francisco and we're using paper maps and pulling out chalk and drawing symbols on the road to try and help our compatriots in the group navigate. And it really just struck me as an extremely mismatched reality, the fact that we were riding these pretty cutting edge machines and uh, messing around with paper maps and finding ourselves in highways and things like that. That thought stuck with me when I finished the trip and I started to look into whether there might be an opportunity to bring a next level of technology, a digital technology to the cycling space. And so I started looking at the industry, looking at some of the companies that were in it at the point. Garmin at that point was the only company that was really making GPS driven head units. I wasn't super impressed with what existed on the market at the time. And so I resolved to try and build something better myself. And so what we've done over the course of the past couple of years has been bringing the quality and level of technology from the smartphone industry. So much more powerful processing, much higher quality screens, better user interface, both with buttons and touchscreen to the cycling head unit category. And our vision is that by doing that, that will allow us to deliver much richer and more powerful software experiences to riders on the bike. And we hope to, by doing that, put them on safer roads with better navigation, giving tools to meet up with and compete with friends and in the social setting, with better training guidance in front of them to make training more effective. And then ultimately to connect with the technology that's taking place in the urban space around self-driving cars, some of the 
bicycle to vehicle technology that's that's currently being developed there. So ultimately, we'd like to make cycling safer by virtue of using our platform to connect with and speak with, you know, speak in inverted commas, cars and uh, some of the other vehicles on the road today. So that's what we're up to. And we're uh, certainly excited about where we are in that journey at this point. So much in there. And I would love to come back to, to that point about cars and bicycles talking to each other. It's, it's not a world that uh, really matches up oftentimes, we think, especially in busy cities like New York, where you are in London, where I am. But just to backtrack and talk about the specific category, people may be familiar with companies like Garmin who do navigation, computers, running watches, things like that. But in the cycling category specifically, I guess you could look at it in a sense that it's quite a busy category for for the specific type of unit, but uh, an entrepreneur such as yourself might look at it and say there's huge room for innovation, especially in a time when cycling seems to be booming. What was your aim in setting out there? And just talk to us about that growth, because it did take some time from creating the company to actually launching a product. I had the, I guess one could say the naivete of being a relatively new entrepreneur when I started out. And that meant that I didn't understand just how long and how much work it would be to go from concept to having a class leading product in the market today. So the journey overall has been, I think we launched our first product in 2014. So a little over six coming up on seven years. And what we did first was we focused first on the navigation problem that I described, you know, this broader vision of bringing technology to the cycling category as a large one. And so we had to pick a place to start. And we started with the navigation problem. And so what we did was we built the most basic tool to put on a bike and connect to a smartphone and start to give cyclists better route and navigation guidance. And that product was called the Hammerhead One. We uh, launched that in about 2014 and, and it was quite successful. We won a series of prestigious design awards for it, got a lot of press. And it was actually the namesake of the company. So the reason the company is called Hammerhead is because of the T-shaped navigation device that looked a lot like a hammerhead shark. And so that's where we started out. Our vision has always been beyond just navigation. So we quite quickly on the success of that product started building what's now the Karoo product that you see in the market today. It's certainly been a journey. I think that some of the things that I've continued to be struck by throughout this amount of time is just that I don't think the level of technology that is being delivered in the head unit category today is anywhere near what one sees in other, in certainly the smartphone industry or smartwatch industry increasingly. And so I continue to believe there's a huge opportunity to deliver in that space. And so I guess to your question, while it is a category in which, you know, there are many companies building cycling computers, cycling head units, I don't think if one compares those products to the state of the art today and other consumer electronics product categories, I think there's a very evident delta between where cycling is in that respect and other products are. So we aspire to close that delta. And I think that if you look at our product today, the Karoo 2, in many ways, it is a lot closer to the technology one would expect and, and see in other categories. So the screen is unlike anything else in cycling at this point in terms of its resolution, its ability to present data. The processor is far more powerful and putting those two things together allows us to now start to build software that takes advantage of that and is much richer and more capable of guiding cyclists. You mentioned the data, and we have in past done an episode with Strava, and, and I asked Mark Ganey, one of the founders then, about you know the power of all that data and what it is used for. Obviously, there is the component of the device that allows people to navigate a city or, or navigate on a long distance, such as your ride across America. But just talk to me about how you think bigger picture and how you've done that right from the beginning. You, you talked about not sort of 
keeping yourself in that category of just being a, a bicycle data computer, but thinking more broadly about cities, about what that can do. Talk to me a little bit about that journey and, and where you're at now. It's certainly an interesting one. I mean, I think that data is obviously a very topical topic at this point. A lot of folks are talking about data. And I think that cycling is very interesting from a data perspective in the cyclists generate a lot of very high quality data through the sensors that they typically use. So if you look at competitive and enthusiast cyclists today, a lot of them the power meters, the majority of them are heart rate monitors, cadence sensors, the computers are obviously recording speed and GPS positioning and temperature and you know, a variety of other metrics. And so when you put all of that together, it does mean that cyclists are, I would argue, the most quantified athletes, or at least athletes that exist at a large number of any group today. And so I think there's a huge opportunity to take all of this data and start to turn it into better routing insights as one example. You know, and Strava's actually done an interesting job of that using some of their heat map data. So starting to see and, and inform their own routing algorithm with, you know, the insight into where people ride most frequently you see that as a start in this direction. I think that there is a lot more that will happen in that direction over time. And we've always envisaged an experience that looks a lot more like ways for bikes. So where the community is proactively inputting their recommendations around, you know, roads that may be good or bad for cycling. Talk to me about uh, some of the other partners or stakeholders in being able to share this technology. You mentioned the idea earlier of perhaps working with companies outside of that industry, perhaps car companies to talk about how you can I imagine, make cities safer for one, but also begin to provide feedback on how cyclists move throughout a city. Absolutely. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there. So we're working with a group in a consortium that includes a Ford specialized Trek and a series of other companies to start to put together and define what the protocols will be for bikes and cars to start to communicate. So I think that is one example that's very exciting. I think that as they are increasingly connected through technology like ours, are going to be able to send various signals out and cars are obviously becoming more connected. And so the possibility of connecting those two data points is very interesting and exciting because the number one limitation to cycling participation, the number one reason people don't get on bikes is a perception of it being dangerous and it obviously can be dangerous. And so that's a big opportunity, I think, for us to both grow cycling as a sport and save lives. You know, So I think that area is very exciting. As I mentioned, this consortium that we're working on uh, with various partners are starting to define what that technology will look like so that we can then commercialize it in the years ahead. You know, I think Tesla's obviously been a leader in that way in many respects. And I think a lot of other companies are recognizing that both electric vehicles are a huge part of the future. And it's definitely clear that the world's major automakers are taking both electrification and then broader, smarter technologies extremely seriously. You know, and within the cycling industry, I think the opportunity or what we see as the opportunity is for companies like ours that bring that digital layer to the bike to be the corresponding partner to the automakers. So if you look at it from the perspective of a company like uh, you know, any of the major bike companies, their core competency is in the manufacture of the mechanical bicycle itself. They don't typically have a deep core competency in software, or connected hardware, connected devices. And so our plan is to partner with the bike companies to make fantastic bicycles and install our hardware and connect it more directly into their bicycles of the future. And by doing that, work in partnership with them and the automakers to define what that standard looks like. And I think the, you know, the work at hand right now is not the work of inventing technologies that could allow bikes and cars to communicate because those technologies largely do exist. It's really a case of trying to define the standards by which that communication will take place. And that's something that has yet to be defined. And so 
without the standard being defined, you'll end up in a world in which automakers and various other companies do things differently, and there's not a lot of interoperability. And obviously, the value in a system of cars, bicycles, communicating is found in it being entirely interoperable and entirely globally adopted. So our perspective on how to make that happen is to identify some of the leading automakers for being one of the ones that we're in discussions with right now, then define what a center could look like and then start to get additional automakers on board with that consortium once we've you know, started to, to map out, sketch out what that could look like. So it's really in the definitional phase at this point, but I do think it is something that will move quite quickly in the immediate period ahead because there's obviously such tremendous interest at so many levels of society in making cycling more safer and encouraging and allowing folks to adopt uh, bicycling more broadly because it obviously solves so many problems as they relate to you know urban congestion or noise pollution or CO2 emissions. I mean, you name the problem in cycling in many ways can provide an element of a solution to it. So I think that fact is something a lot of people recognize and as a result, there's a lot of interest in figuring out how to solve the problems that cyclists find in the, in the urban context. Very, very interesting. Uh, Pete, thank you so much for your time. It's been uh, fascinating to have a look at the company and its growth. We really appreciate your time. For sure. Well, it's been great to chat to you, Daniel, and look forward to getting in touch and speaking to you again soon, I hope. Peter Morgan, CEO and founder of Hammerhead. You can learn more at hammerhead.io. That's all for this week's show. My thanks to Jack Jewers, who mixed and edited this episode. I'm Daniel Bates. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye.